The Bob Murphy Show, episode 77. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today I'm going to be talking with Rob Bradley, and we're going to be talking on mostly his work on the development of Austrian economics concerning energy issues. And then, but I don't want to scare you away if uh, if that doesn't seem like your cup of tea. We get into a lot of stuff about the actual mechanics of government intervention into the energy sector. And there's some really cool anecdotes, as I'll explain when you hear me in the interview with Rob. I even, uh, when I got to Texas Tech, that was one of the first things I did was start working on a project to do a journal article, which of course we'll link at bobmurphyshow.com slash 77, that um, explained in particular some of these consequences just to make sure I want to not let this stuff get lost because it's all contained in Rob's humongous treatise, Oil, Gas, and Government, which was his doctoral dissertation chaired by Murray Rothbard, by the way. And I was concerned that there was just going to be lost to history. And so that's why I pulled out some of those. So for sure, if you're an economist who teaches undergrads, this would be a great thing. Well, even if you teach grad students, this would be a great thing for you to listen to because you'll have some poignant examples when you're talking about unintended consequences. It was the exact formula of government intervenes to do something. Oops, but that causes a separate problem. So then they intervene again to solve that. And oops, that causes and boom, 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 just doing whack-a-mole. So that by the time you're done, the thing was so absurd that nobody was even going to defend it anymore. So that's that part of the story is what I captured in my journal article, which again will be at bobmurphyshow.com slash 77. Last thing here before I give Rob's formal credentials, let me just disclose if anybody cares. Uh, Rob was the founder of the Institute for Energy Research or IER. And at one point when I was in Nashville and had left my previous position and I needed a job, Rob hired me to be an economist for IER working on climate change issues. So anyway, Rob didn't pay me to be nice to him in this episode and he's not even my boss anymore, but just wanted to let you know that. All right. So as far as Rob's formal credentials, he is the founder and chief executive officer of the Institute for Energy Research, a 501c3 educational foundation with offices in Houston, Texas, and Washington. He's an adjunct scholar of the Cato Institute and of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, he holds a BA and MA in economics and a PhD in political economy. And he received the Julian Simon Memorial Award in 2002 for his work on free market approaches to energy sustainability. He is the author most recently of Enron Ascending, The Forgotten Years, 1984 to 1996. And folks, we're going to talk to Rob about that at the, the second portion of this interview that you're about to listen to. Again, a lot of great history there. Rob worked at Enron, so he saw it firsthand. And we're going to bring up the myths that have sprouted up concerning Enron. And is that a laissez-faire institution? That sort of thing. 
Uh, and Rob's earlier volumes in this series were Edison to Enron, Energy Markets and Political Strategies. And the second one was Capitalism at Work, Business, Government, and Energy. And lastly, I'll mention that Rob uh, has the website where he blogs and has other experts on energy policy blog. It's called masterresource.org. And of course, that's uh, named sort of it's derived from Julian Simon, who was talking about the ultimate resource being human innovation. And so here Rob's calling energy the master resource, but applying a Simon-esque framework to that. Oh, one last little note, folks, before we jump into the interview with Rob. Let me mention, in case it wasn't on your radar and you've been listening to just the audio version, I have lately been uploading select interviews and even episodes that aren't interviews, the solo ones, uh, to my YouTube channel. Okay, so if some of the guests are comfortable with me recording the video as well, and so in that case, especially if I think it's a guest that will have a, a wide appeal beyond just our narrow Austro-Libertarian circles, uh, I'll go ahead and get that video and put it on my YouTube channel. So again, it's not going to be every single episode. So if you're a religious listener to this, don't just switch over to the YouTube channel because then you're going to still miss some. But I did want to make you aware. So my YouTube channel is Bob Murphy and Cap. And of course, I'll just put a link in the show notes page uh, whenever that happens. So if you ever go to the podcast website. So for this, it's bobmurphyshow.com slash 77 is where the link that I'll have to the video version of my interview with Rob Bradley. Okay, now on to the interview. Well, Rob, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Good to be with you, Bob. So I gave a little bit of a formal bio on you um, that the listeners have just listened to, but I think uh, maybe if you just explain a little bit about, you know, just your, your broad relevance to the libertarian and Austrian community and just who you are, you know, a short thing, and then we'll go ahead and expand on those as the interview progresses. But just to give people an idea, who is this guy that I'm talking to? Okay. Well, my full name is Robert L. Bradley Jr. And I think of myself as sort of an a accidental libertarian uh, in the sense that uh, I certainly wasn't smarter than anyone else. I, I struggled through school, uh, but I had a lot of passion and maybe I was just a touch of a rebel. And in, uh, in high school, I read an Ayn Rand novel and one thing led to another and I ended up specializing in energy, uh, spent uh, almost 20 years in the corporate world for an energy related bank and then uh, for an ener energy company, Enron Corp. And at the same time, uh, I found out there was really not that much classical liberal scholarship in this huge field of energy. And um, with a little luck and a lot of perseverance and, of course, self-denial, right, uh, Bob? <laughs> you know, it's all about self-denial. Uh, <laughs> I came to specialize in uh, energy history, just applying the worldview of classical liberalism to uh, the mineral energies and to the practice of uh, uh, everything from exploration and production through consumption with uh, oil, natural gas, uh, electricity. And uh, it was kind of a story of, of about how one thing led to another. And uh, here I am, some, I guess, uh, 45 or more years of specializing uh, in energy. Great. Yeah. So maybe if we start, so you're one of the few people that 
it's correct to say your PhD advisor was Murray Rothbard, right? Yeah, Rothbard was part of uh, uh, the huge accident, I guess, that uh, uh, got me uh, from, you know, just a regular business career, being a vice president at a Houston bank into a full-time energy specialization. But uh, yeah, Rothbard came into play to add a little bit of of history. Uh, I got very interested in Austrian economics in my college years. And mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Libertarian was Murray Rothbard. And I arranged with a gentleman named George Pearson, uh, who was managing some of Charles Koch's philanthropic uh, endeavors in the classical liberal movement to fund a visit to campus to Rollins College uh, by Murray Rothbard, where he gave a series of talks. And I got to know uh, Murray a little bit. He was sort of uh, a father figure to me, or I was pretty starstruck being around him. Uh, so, so, uh, stop you. so you you were a student at Rollins? Uh, I, yeah, I, I went undergraduate. I was at Rollins College from okay, uh, and so 73 you- to 77, and I brought in Murray Rothbard. So okay. that's where yeah. I first was introduced to Rothbard. And then later on, uh, I get a master's degree at the University of Houston, and my uh, master's thesis uh, is uh, called Interpretations of the Vixalian Idea, looking at monetary policy and how Gunnar Myrdal, mm-hmm. Dennis Robertson, Hayek Mises and Keynes himself all interpreted uh, Vic Sell's uh, idea of the real versus market uh, interest rate. Now, I might have, uh, it's been a while since I've read my master's thesis, but it's something close to that. So I did a master's thesis at the University of Houston. I wanted to get a PhD and teach, mm-hmm. but the mathematics was a little too much for me, and my doctoral dissertation would not have been anything that uh, uh, I would think uh, was particularly useful. So with great regret, I uh, left those aspirations behind, went to work for a bank in the Houston area, a capital bank that was making all this money off the oil resellers. And Bob, you know the story of how regulations set up the oil reselling boom and how this was all superfluous entrepreneurship and under price and allocation regulations, the resellers were getting the money rather than the producers. Uh, but that got me into energy, and I applied to the Cato Institute to write a history of oil and gas regulation, thinking that if I understood the these very complicated 1970s regulation, I could uh, surely figure out all the regulation, all the government intervention that came before, and it was going to be a one to one and a half year project. I got a $5,000 grant from the Cato Institute, and I took a leave of absence from my bank, and I started working on this thing, and by golly, there was a lot more there than I thought. So some five years of full-time effort later, uh, I had a manuscript, Oil, Gas, and Government, the U.S. Experience. Can can I stop you for a second, Rob? Let me just make sure. So, so yeah, and that, that is certainly something I wanted to talk about. And and folks, you know, the, the listeners here, so this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 77. I'll put a link. I had done a journal article drawing heavily on oil, gas, and government and some of the great anecdotes Rob had dug up about ways people in the private sector would use these regulations, you know, for quote, unintended consequences. So some cool little stories. 
But Robert, are you saying it was because of your work in you were in Houston at the time? Yes. And, in a bank, uh, and that like that's how you saw firsthand these the regulations of the seventies yeah, and the, the oil the and gas. Bank was, uh, the was the bank capital bank was making all this money off letters of credit, where these mm. oil resellers uh, they were buying and selling oil with each, each Could, other. Maybe just is yeah, Rob. Just to, so the listener know, because this is a great. Do you mind telling a, just a tiny little bit of the story right now in terms of what they were doing? These resellers, like with the daisy chains and all that stuff. Yeah, just so people uh, well, know what you're ta- you know, I'll get to that in a, in a minute, but because it is a great story, it might be the most unusual regulatory experience in U.S. history, mm-hmm. uh, and you might agree with me there. But so I got this grant from the Cato Institute, mm-hmm. and then I heard from. Uh, I think it was Leonard Liggio or Walter Grinder or someone at the Institute for Humane Studies says, hey, by the way, if you want to get a Ph.D., because I had my master's but not Ph.D., you should check into uh, this school, International College, uh, out of Los Angeles, where they have they award non-resident degrees for uh, a publishable doctoral dissertation where your committee is composed uh, prominent people in the field. And I thought, mm-hmm. oh, this could be neat. So I got in touch with Hans Sinholz, mm-hmm. who had done this with some other uh, classical liberals. And Sinholz wanted me to come and spend at least a semester at, uh, um, uh, what is it, Grove City? Grove City, yeah. Grove City. And I was real wed to Houston and didn't want to do that. And so I reluctantly... Uh, uh, didn't make a deal. And then it just sort of popped in my head. What if I asked Murray Rothbard? Mm-hmm. And uh, at the same time, I was thinking of some of my other acquaintances. One was Don Lavoy, who I'd struck up a good friendship with and admired. And then uh, Dom Armentano, who was one of the few classical liberals who was interested in uh, energy questions. And uh, Armentano came to oil, gas, energy through antitrust, but sure. uh, he was one of the few. So I got those three to be uh, my dissertation committee. So I used my Cato project for uh, a PhD with International College in political economy, not okay. economics, but political mm-hmm. economy. And um, I pretty much finished the book in the mid. 80s, but it took us a full decade to find a publisher because it was very long. It's a 2,000-page uh, work, and I have a copy here. Yeah. And you don't have to read it. You can have a full life and not uh, <laughs> read it. Uh, so can you see it? Can you pull back a little bit just so they can see? Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Can you maybe turn them on their side so we can see how thick they are? Yeah, they're pretty thick. This is a labor theory of value, by the way. <laughs> yeah. So uh, there you go. Or maybe I need to do it that way, volume one and two. So, but, you know, to write a treatise, and this is just, you know, it's history. I'm not smart enough to to write a lot on pure theory. But what inspired me to write this book and to go for a treatise was human action, by Von Mises and Man, Economy, and State by Rothbard, Mm -hmm. uh, because I thought, you know, these are the real useful books that will survive over time. Mm -hmm. You know, a treatise. When you can pull 
off the shelf one book and get a whole lot of information from it, that that's the type book that should be written. And I, uh, I'm disappointed that we don't have a treatise in every uh, business industrial area. Uh, I've done it with oil and gas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe this is the first classical liberal treatise uh, in political economy of an industry. But there's what you have to do for this. And what I did for years is I would go to the library. I would pull out off the shelves, off mm-hmm. the stacks, uh, all the weekly issues of the oil and gas journal and mm-hmm. the National Petroleum News. And I would thumb through every issue and you see all these regulatory episodes, and I'd photocopy them, I'd collect them, and then uh, I'd write the history. And the advantage of a, of a treatise, when you do something like this, you start to see patterns right. that uh, you wouldn't see if you were looking at individual episodes. So what really came alive for me looking at all this history was the Mises Interventionist Thesis how so many of the interventions were actually part of a interventionist process where there was something that came before and there was something that came after that were causally related. So uh, in a subsequent essay, and at the end of the book, I tried to tie all these uh, interventions together. Okay, great. Um, so just make sure the, the listener got it. So what oil, gas, and government is, it's a history of for the United States from start to the, you know, the present as of when you were writing it of all the interventions in the oil and gas sector. And, right. and for the, for the people who are totally novices here by gas, we mean natural gas, not gasoline. Well, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's both, uh, uh, even before natural gas and before gasoline was manufactured gas, it was coal mm. gas. So, uh, you have public utility regulation, uh, gas utilities, manufactured gas utilities that were part of this. And then, of course, there's electricity, which is really a different industry from oil and gas. But I didn't cover electricity uh, in this book because there was just so much to do with oil and gas. Right. Okay. So you, is now a good time to tell the the daisy chain story or do you want (laughs) to? Sure. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. And so you, you learned this firsthand when you're working for a bank that was engaged in these things and that's how you learned of it. And then as an academic, you started, you know, fleshing the theory out as to explain what the heck's going on here. Yeah. So this this was the accident that got me Mm -hmm. as a specialist with uh, oil gas and that expanded to electricity and uh, the broad energy market. And before then, like a lot of classical liberals, I was became interested in energy from the energy crisis and being in the gasoline lines. I was Mm -hmm. actually old enough to be in the gasoline lines in 73 and 4 and uh, again the summer of 79. So a lot of free market types were were getting in energy just because of this. And guess what? Uh, In the last year, year and a half, the general free market community is now back in energy with the Green New Deal. (laughs) <laughs> so, yep, yep. you know, you, you you went from the 70s to recently, and this is a wonderful thing. We have all sorts of scholars, uh, our top scholars that are focusing in on energy issues and climate issues. So 
I go to work for the bank in 79, and uh, the bank sees that I have an economics background, so they asked me to look into this industry that they were making lots of letter of credit fees off of called the oil resellers. Mm-hmm. And where did they come from? Why did they suddenly arise? And how long are they going to be around? Because if they go away, the letter of credit business goes away and, uh, you know, they lose a lot of profits. And the letter of credit, loosely speaking, is like a short-term business loan that the bank would give to these people? Not quite. It's a guarantee of payment. Okay. So the bank, somehow they started with one or two oil resellers and then their they uh, other resellers went to the bank. So the bank ended up with, you know, maybe a couple of dozen uh, and certainly a dozen major customers. So these customers had a lot of money in the bank, but what they needed was a guarantee when they bought oil that they would pay the other party. So a letter of credit is a very short-term guarantee that the other party is going to pay for the oil or the oil product that was purchased. Okay. So they, it was, and I, just to make the mechanics. So it was like the bank was the co-signer on credit that was advanced to the, to these people. Like, so they uh, were buying uh, it from somebody and then the bank was there to say, we're good for it if they don't pay. Yeah. And these were back to back transactions. This is as mm-hmm. close as you can get to an arbitrage. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the buyer and seller, they have their deal, but the bank, would step would uh, back the uh, transaction to say if there's non-performance by one party, uh, we will step in and make good. And the reason the bank could do this is the bank had deposits from these different parties that would cover the transaction. Okay, mm-hmm. so this is as close to arbitrage as you can get. So um, before in the oil industry, there was oil product trading. But it was generally done by companies that had physical assets like, um, you know, an oil pipeline or a refinery uh, who would uh, buy and sell oil uh, using the knowledge and using the opportunity of the of those physical assets. But all of a sudden in the 70s, you have pure resellers where the companies didn't have any physical assets Really, all they had was a telex machine and a phone and an office. And the joke was, you know, a couple of uh, some of them had a couple of quarters to make the next phone call. You know, back then there were little you put in a dime or a quarter and make your phone call uh, from a payphone. And they were making these margins. And, mm-hmm. and so the question is, why were they able to do this? And the answer is that there were federal price controls on oil at the wellhead. So the producer, uh, depending on the type oil, and there was old oil and new oil, and it's incredibly convoluted, but the producer was prevented from getting his or her market price because of federal regulation. Mm -hmm. And the rule was that everyone that touched that oil, including the refiner, the wholesaler, and the retailer, uh, they had a limit on their margins, and it was their historical margin as of, I think it was something like uh, May 15, 1973, a normal period before the oil embargo. Mm-hmm. So let's say if you had a 
4% margin, you are allowed to pass through all your costs and to make that historic margin. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the refiner, so long as the refiner could get the crude oil and uh, make its historic margin, it didn't really care if the oil was a couple dollars higher or not. So mm-hmm. the resellers stepped into the void between the wellhead and the refiner and the refiner with product, with oil products, between the refiner and the wholesaler or retailer to capture uh, the margins that by law the producers and the refiners could not make themselves. So it was a re- it was regulatory arbitrage mm-hmm. and these firms, a lot of them were friends with each other and they'd sell the oil back and forth to make their margin. But if you just keep selling it, lots of people can make margin. Yeah. So just to give people the context, um, so the, you know, there's the the price controls that go into effect in the early 70s. And then, but they realized if they just, and then this isn't a period, you know, and then there's the Arab oil embargo and all that stuff. So the world price of oil had risen sharply. And so the problem was if they just put in, so so there would have been windfall profits as, it, you know, they're using their terminology to the domestic right. owners of existing wells that were in operation. You know, the, just the value of the stuff they already knew was there would have gone up rapidly. So they put in price controls because they didn't want a windfall profit to the domestic owners of already located operational wells. But they realized there'd be a crippling effect. No one's going to go out and drill for more oil if there's the controlled price. So that's why if you were selling, quote, new oil, you could charge closer to the world price. Right. There was incentives for, uh, you know, new drilling versus old wells. Mm. And uh, but there was arbitrage whenever the producer price, the price at the wellhead was less than market. Uh, there was an opportunity for someone to jump in and make the money since the downstream parties really didn't care so long as they could make their margins. And the government, they were trying to get the price savings from price controls all the way to consumers. And what they didn't realize was that you can buy and sell oil, you know, five times, 20 times, 30 times to get up to the market level. And the good news out of this superfluous entrepreneurship term that Israel Kirzner introduced is that it really kept us out of the gasoline lines most of the price control period. Mm-hmm. So, by the way, I don't know if you can hear this, Rob, or listeners at home, but there's they're doing maintenance or something in the next to my office, so there's banging, but can't be helped. Oh, um, I thought that was applause, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so, again, I want to make sure the people. And, and by the way, folks, this is the, the what Rob's talking about here is what I wrote up in in a in a journal article because I I wanted economists to know about this because it was such a great example of price controls and unintended consequences. But so the, the deal was, Rob, that you're, you know, so you had technologically equivalent barrels of oil selling at different prices by law, just from a historical accident that, oh, this barrel of crude is coming from an existing well. So that's quote old oil, whereas this one's more. And so that's obviously not economically meaningless. And you're saying the the intermediate, like if you bought it one price and then you were allowed to charge a little bit of a markup to cover, you know, your, your cost of operation and you give a margin to your investors or whatever. And so if, if oil selling someplace that, do you remember like off the top of your head, what, what some of the prices were like well, for old and new? Yeah, for, 
you know, they changed, but uh, I think old oil was $5 a barrel. A new oil was $10 a barrel. Okay. Yeah. Something like, yeah, I just want to pick something. Yeah. Walmart. It's a, uh, chemically it's identical. Right. And so, so you're saying with the, what, what they could do, they realize is this is wasteful. Like, in other words, the, so the government thought or the the spirit of the legislation was supposed to be, or the regulations, I should say, was supposed to be that, oh, we'll save the $5 and, and keep prices low at the gasoline pump for for motorists. But the fact that some people were selling at 10, clearly everyone wanted to get a piece of that. And so somebody would buy it at five. And let's say they could add a quarter. I'm just making that number up. They would sell to someone else for 525. That person would then sell to someone else for 550. And that was the daisy chain. So these wholesalers and would these middlemen would just do paper transactions where they kept buying and selling the same physical product without even moving it necessarily, but just changing the title because yeah. each, each transaction, they were allowed to do a little bit of the markup. Right. So and that's be, also key. They, mm-hmm. uh, this oil is just sitting there or is right. in a pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's really interesting here is that uh, with each category of oil, and there got to be, 10 different categories or more, mm-hmm. you had to, each reseller had to be in balance. So at the end of the month, you had to buy and sell the same number of barrels of old oil, new oil, and then there was stripper oil, stripper oil being produced from wells that produce less than 10 barrels a day. You know, if you see the uh, the jack pump, sometimes mm-hmm. an oil states uh that's what that's generally a stripper well you know it's barely producing so that got an unregulated price so it had a real high price so um to prevent what the regulators call miscertification mm-hmm. where let's say you uh take old oil at five dollars and you call it new oil and sell it for ten dollars plus your allowed margin they required you to be in balance but there was a one fella who was a shoe salesman in in Oklahoma who got into this business, and uh, he had a saying around the office: "We buy uh, old oil, we sell stripper oil." <laughs> where uh, there was miscertification, where he could be making twenty twenty five dollars a barrel, even more than the producers, to mm-hmm. to sell this oil, and he was prosecuted and he made hundreds of millions of dollars and uh, went to jail and all the rest of it. So the the regulators, they caught on to what was going on. So there was all these regulatory amendments to try to get rid of this uh, uneconomic or uh, reselling. And at the very end, the new federal rule was you had to move physically move the oil like a mile or something. Mm-hmm. in order to make a margin on it. And I'm sure some of these people were, uh, you know, moving it a mile if it was in their self-interest uh, right. to still make a profit. Sure. Well, that's great. Okay. Yeah. So like I said, folks, that story I write up in, the, in a journal article because I knew this was great stuff. I want to make sure economy, because like you say, Rob, it's the government kept tweaking the rules to re- remove the last absurdity, but then some new absurdity would arise in response to the new rules and they kept tweaking it just showing the futility of the whole enterprise. Okay. So you're, so that's what you, so you learned that you, you saw with your own eyes and then you said, Oh, I'm going to research this and do, you know, a big yeah, project. That was a, that was a beginning and mm-hmm. I got a grant from the Cato Institute. Then I found out you could get a PhD with a, a publishable dissertation with the distinguished committee. So that's what uh-huh. got me 
to uh, Murray Rothbard, and I enjoyed over a several-year period him encouraging me. And we had mm-hmm. some very late-night phone conversations. I remember I would stay up to about midnight and give him a call because mm-hmm. uh, I knew that was his work time. Sure. He wrote me long letters with comments. Uh, he was doing a million other things, but he really liked what I was doing, and he felt it was uh, unique and new. And uh, what really helped me here was I remember the first chapter where I'm trying to get out the uh, explain the worldview of uh, why uh, markets work without central direction and uh, government intervention doesn't work. Those are my early drafts of that were were very simple and not mm-hmm. very good. But old Murray Rothbard, he was so encouraging. He goes, this is great. This is great. So I started thinking, well, you know, I'm, I'm a lot smarter enough I thought. You know, I'm a, maybe I'm an intellectual big shot. So just having the confidence and right. the, uh, the perseverance to say, hey, I'm doing something that's really going to mm-hmm. be read and be influential uh, went a long way. Sure. Okay. So just the mechanics of it, was it like, did you go out periodically by plane, like in person? Was he a New Yorker in UNLV at this point? He was in New York City, so we just went by phone and mail. And then uh, he was here in Houston for a Mises Institute conference over at the University of Houston. And this would have been, oh, maybe uh, 82 or 3, somewhere. Well, no, it might have been 85 or, or so. We found time, and I defended my dissertation with Murray Rothbard and Don Lavoie uh, and uh, Dom Armentano I worked with separately, but uh, mm-hmm. I did defend my dissertation uh, with Murray Rothbard. Were they all in the room together or just Murray? Uh, just me and Murray. Okay. Uh, the other okay. two mm-hmm. were not. I worked with them separately. Right. Okay. Are there any, it's, it's fine if the answer is no, but are there any uh, like anecdotes, like, you know, funny things you can think of, like working with any of those three guys that, Oh, uh, you know what? My favorite Murray Rothbard anecdote is I'm at some conference, you know, with a bunch of other people and Murray's there and it's 10 o'clock and we're all talking and, you know, in, inevitably it's like, let's order a pizza. And I think Domino's had gotten going on this just several years before. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to, Murray's trying to call and he's not having any luck. And uh, he, he decided that there must be some government intervention that's preventing <laughs> uh, our group from uh, paying the market price for a pizza. But I think the the other answer was we were in a small town and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this was early on. But uh, I thought that was kind of cute. <laughs> that's good. Well, is it is now a good time? Because I want to talk about your like your contributions to, you know, the, the theory of energy development from an Austrian perspective but also your time at Enron. Which which one do you want to hit first? Oh, why don't we uh, keep going uh, with uh, energy and sure. classical okay. liberal theory. Let's uh, keep going there. So, uh, you know, oil, gas, and government, the best compliment I ever got was from someone who said he was looking at the book and thought it was really good. And then he came to the back flat and he looked at my picture and uh, he goes, I expected to see an old man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you write a treatise at the end of your career. But right. uh, what 
there's different things that allowed me to do this at the beginning of my career. But the, the two main things is one, if you have a reliable worldview, mm. then you get all this historical information and you can categorize it. It makes sense. And you don't run into any really big anomalies. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is I uh, had some luck. I, uh, I married a gal that had a real job. And uh, so I was able to, you know, spend all my time on this, you know, a day and night and not have to be a waiter uh, somewhere. Right. Uh, and my father uh, uh, was very supportive. And I come from a family here in Houston where I have a, had a little bit of oil and gas royalties, mm-hmm. just enough to help me, you know, where I didn't have to eat beans and the rest of it. So to be able to afford to do this five years and not be an academic and not, you know, have to work a second job was, was a huge luxury that I had that other people didn't have. And I guess I'm my own best friend because I had the perseverance to do it. But doing a book like this, like I said, you see patterns. So uh, you can contribute to pure theory by looking at this universe of intervention. And at the end of the book, I was able to take, you know, the many hundreds of interventions and uh, have a classification system where uh, I identify them as this or that. And within this category, it was that. So uh, you can do this. And this is a typology that you can use for any intervention in any industry. And like I said before, classical liberals, we get a big A for monetary theory, monetary history. We have aced it mm-hmm. uh, with you know Larry White, with uh, you, with George Selgin, and so many others. But then past that, you get to maybe energy is the second most, next to money and banking, energy has more history of government involvement for good and for bad, or really for bad, than any other industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I would give us, you know, a B in that area, because I think I've gotten us to a B, but I'm always, there's always more to be done. But so the worldview really made this possible, along with not having to uh, be distracted by, you know, being a professor and teaching classes or whatever. But there was one anomaly, uh, uh, and that was that there was a market failure under the rule of capture, where you have a contiguous oil or gas reservoir where everyone can uh, put their straw in it because under the legal system, you only had title to this oil and gas from common reservoirs, you know, with co-owners, if you physically controlled the oil. And Rothbard was saying, uh, you know, there's something wrong with this rule of capture uh, because it leads to overdrilling. It leads to too much above ground storage versus, you know, leaving the oil underground. So he I think was suspicious of this. And he mentioned the homestead theory. Can I stop you for a second? Let me just make sure the the listeners get what you're saying. So you got to under the, the way the legal system worked when you were working on this, 
you got two adjacent landowners, you know, so they own the real estate, you know, on the surface. Surface. And then the question is, and, and then suppose there's a deposit of crude oil that's beneath their land such that it's a pool that cr- straddles their border. So either of them yeah. dr- drilling straight down on, quote, their straight own property down. are going to hit it. Right. And so if one guy's pumping barrels up on his property, that's reducing the oil in the pool. So his neighbor now has fewer barrels that he might suck up on his property because right. they're both putting straws, as it were, into the same drink. That's right. under, and the rule of capture, yeah. uh, the analogies the English courts used was, uh, you know, if there's a, a duck or a turkey or something that's on your land, you can kill it, eat it, and it's your property, but you can't uh, get you're trespassing if you uh, kill it from your property where it's on someone else's property. Right. Uh, so when the oil is down in the reservoir, it's uh, owned by whoever's above it with surface rights. The idea is that mineral rights go to the center of the earth. Mm-hmm. So no one else can take it, but there's you and the other uh, reservoir co-owners above mm-hmm. it. Uh, and it's, it's yours in plural if it's beneath your land, but it's not yours singularly unless you physically take it out. Well, that leads to drainage. So the, uh, yeah. So just, yeah. So for just an analogy to, again, for the people at home. So it's like, if you, if you and your friend are sharing like a big gulp drink and you both have straws in it, he, you know, you can each suck as much. Once it's in the other guy's mouth, you can't like twap his, you know, his cheek and make him spit it out. It's his, if it's inside of his mouth. And so that's it. And no other person can come in and take it out of your cup. But the two of you, so people can see how you would drink more quickly than you would if you each had your own cup and you could drink at your own pace. And so, yeah, Uh, yeah, that's a, uh, you know, bad incentives here. So the courts, they came up with something. They modified the rule of capture to say correlative rights, which Mm -hmm. means you can produce, if it's me and you over this oil reservoir, you know, I can produce, you can produce, but we can't drain the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there needs to be some sort of a an equalization here. But along with that, they had the offset drilling rule that, Bob, if you drill and find the oil and then I'm right next to you, then I have to uh, or it's incumbent on me to drill my own well to get down there mm-hmm. to know that the oil's there. And if, if you're a driller and, and a royalty owner, you know, uh, it, it came to be that the subsurface mineral rights became separated from the surface rights. And like mm-hmm. I uh, have uh, mineral rights. And if there's a driller that leases with me and has my mineral rights, and let's say you've already drilled and found it, then the new firm is obligated to drill an offset well to make sure I get my share. So there's there was a lot of, I don't know how you'd describe it, but under the rule of capture, there was uh, a number of rules that came about that certainly weren't perfect, but they were trying to address the problems created mm-hmm. with the rule of capture. So, so then what, yeah, so what, you, what did you guys so, do? So mm-hmm. Rothbard tells me this homestead theory, and then I think Dom Armentano early on mentioned something about homestead theory as an alternative to the rule of capture. But, um, this, you know, in the Locke tradition of, um, of ownership, 
you know, state of nature. Mm-hmm. And then you find something or you combine your labor and then it becomes property for the first time. So that was fairly easy to understand. So I applied it to uh, oil and gas and, you know, thought through a lot of the uh, potential issues that could come about. And uh, I guess for the first time, I wrote up a, you know, a fairly decent application of homestead theory uh, in place of the rule of capture. And and so the just loosely speaking, like, so that just means when you, the, the first person to, uh, how, how did you do it in other words? Because I know like yeah. some versions, like the yeah. original, oh, you mix your labor with it, but then subsequent libertarian theories, like, well, is it really mixing your labor? You know, that kind of stuff. Well, there's, you know, there's no such thing as mineral rights. They're just surface rights. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless, uh, you know, you do something that's so, close to the surface that it causes a cave-in or something, uh, you know, you don't uh, really need to have any particular association with the uh, surface right owner. Uh, So if it's a state of nature with minerals, it's the first person with an oil gas reservoir to discover the reservoir gets the title to the entire contiguous supply. Okay. So this so you, would mean mm-hmm. you, all you need to do is do a, a rental with the surface owner, and you could even, you know, uh, directionally drill. You right. could go straight down. You could directionally drill, and if you find it, then what you need to do is you need to, and this is where, you know, I just sort of came up with, okay, how would this work? Uh, you would need to delineate the field because the technology wasn't developed to know, you know, how much oil or gas you have just because you found it in one area. So mm-hmm. you would need to drill other wells to delineate the field and have some sort of an intellectual case to go down to the courthouse and say, this is my private property. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you have a situation, uh, the East Texas oil field that was discovered in 1931 and it ends, ends up, this is 125 square mile contiguous field, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what happened with this field is you had three drillers uh, independently who hit the oil at approximately the same time, but they didn't know the other ones were doing it. So actually, right. in cases like that, you'd have multiple owners. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to work through a lot of uh, situations, but basically what this does, this is a huge uh, transfer of economic rent, if I've used the term correctly, from royalty owners to the actual drillers, okay? Mm -hmm. And then if you have all, you know, offshore drilling where the government says, you know, we own it, Mm -hmm. uh, or on uh, public lands, guess what? The government wouldn't own anything. This is a state of nature, and whoever finds it offshore, onshore, and delineates the field and makes a legal claim, then they're the owners. Okay, that's, that's let me just make sure I get the, the basic principle. And I know you're saying in practice, you know, there's there's complications, but so you got two adjacent landowners in terms of the surface, and neither of them, when they bought their property, realized there was oil under it. But let's say, in fact, there is a big pool of oil that straddles their, you know, the surface boundary line. And so you're saying just like the homesteading principle in general, uh, you know, some guy 
chops down some wood in the forest area and clears, puts a fence up and homes. Oh, he owns it. That doesn't mean he has the rights to all of the surface of planet earth. Right. And so, and so why just in terms of the geometry, if we agree, you wouldn't go out indefinitely, you know, on the perimeter of his property. Why would you go down in the Z direction? Why would you assume he owns to the center of the earth, Mm -hmm. a column straight down? And so, if he doesn't know there's oil down there and he hasn't explored, then why would you think his property rights go down to include that? You know, in other words, on the surface, the property rights from homesteading aren't infinite. So why would you assume they're, you know, down? So right, then you're right. saying the first guy who finds the oil, it's like he homesteaded that whole little pool down there, just like a, someone in the forest who stumbles upon, you know, apple trees might say, ah, I'm claiming all these apple trees that I can see here because I'm the first person to see them. Right. Now, that person would need to build a fence around the apple right, trees yeah. that uh, he uh, he or she claimed as property. So this reduces pure luck a lot. And mm-hmm. one of uh, the funny stories in my book, occasionally I have a little humor in the book, was uh, and I, I, I saw this in some oil, old oil and gas journal article from maybe the 30s, 40s, uh, maybe 50s, was uh, there's an Indian tribe maybe in Oklahoma, and they were uh, destitute. They couldn't farm, do anything, so they're all leaving in their wagons. And then six months later, they go back to the reservations in Cadillacs, in in these new cars, beautiful new Mm -hmm. cars. What do you think happened? Someone found a lot of oil and gas under their reservation. So there's pure luck here that the Mm -hmm. homestead theory would correct because the incentive should be for oil and gas drillers, the finders, to have the property and not uh, royalty owners. Even though I'm a I'm a small fry royalty owner. Mm-hmm. Okay, and like you were saying, just in case people missed, you know, what's the what? What are we trying to correct with this more appropriate property rule that? under the original well, the rule of capture where it's not really yours until you bring it to the surface, you'd see a, inefficient things like Rothbard, you were saying like you, they'd pump up and store it in barrels in warehouses instead of, even if they weren't going to sell it for two years. Whereas no, it'd make more sense just to leave it in the ground and bring it up yeah. when we're going to sell yeah, it. Yeah. So uh, uh, different things here. One, there'd be a lot less drilling. Uh, so mm-hmm. there was over drilling. But the second thing is, that your storage, it doesn't have to be above ground, uh, like you say. And it's very wasteful. And there was oil. Uh, they'd have ponds of oil. Uh, you know, it was running mm-hmm. in the streets. Uh, it was something else. Now, here's the other interesting question that comes out of this. So given the rule of capture and all this, was there a market failure because of a common pool problem? And that was another uh, anomaly I had so the question, the second question is, well, if there's all this overdrilling and overproduction, costs are too high, revenues are lower than they would be, why didn't the reservoir co-owners, the different drillers, right. why didn't they get together and reduce their costs jointly uh, and improve the economics of, you know, producing to market demand? And this was an anomaly in the the economics profession, not there weren't particularly uh, any classical liberals, but the the economists, PhD economists who wrote on energy in the uh, starting in the 30s, a guy named John Izzy, 
uh, and people like Forrest McDonald, the University of Texas, and there's an SMU economist also. To them, this is a market failure. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, therefore, you do need state rules, and these state rules came about limiting the amount of drilling you do. And they had a rule, you can only have one well every 40 acres and one gas Mm -hmm. well every 240 acres. Mm -hmm. You need to have a maximum rate of production because there was another problem. There were some reservoirs that were rate sensitive. So if you produce it too fast, you actually damage the reservoir where your total recovery is uh, compromised, Mm -hmm. you know, even accounting for uh, time preference. Uh, so there's, let me, let me just read it. Cause I, I didn't know that just, I didn't know that much about the geology and whatever you want to say, physics or chemistry of it that, so you're saying it, it's not, it's not correct to just think of it. Oh, there's like whatever, 1500 barrels of oil there. And if this guy takes it, there's 1499 and this guy takes it, there's 1490 that if, if one of them sucks it up too quickly, the, well, the thing collapses such that the total barrels recovered by all parties is a lower number. Yes, uh, these are, uh, it's not universal. It's really oil wells and not natural gas wells, but Mm. some reservoirs are rate sensitive. So if you go all out, you can create a cone where the uh, drill bit is, where you're losing the oil uh, around Mm. it. So there were some rate sensitive reservoirs uh, where they're just pushed out uh, they're, they're drained too fast. And, uh, mm. so this, you know, is, this is a huge market failure and you have all these rules from the state of Texas, Louisiana, uh, Oklahoma, Kansas, and even out in California where they have all these rules and they actually went to something called market demand proration where they're trying to keep oil at a certain price. So they, the different states tell their producers, you can only produce so much. Uh, mm-hmm. And then uh, that meant more imports. So guess what? Government comes in with an import tariff, you know, in 1932. Mm-hmm. And then they come up with a quota system, oil quota system in 1959. So again, that's the Mises interventionist thesis that's coming into play. One intervention leads to another and another. Mm-hmm. But So we still have this anomaly, you know, given the rule of capture and correlative rights, you know, why was there over drilling? Why was there poor reservoir management? And this is where I think I made uh, a contribution because going through all this history, I've just started to find these different things. Mm -hmm. For example, state antitrust law in Texas, which was very strict and business people were scared to death of it. And these laws were passed. This law was passed partly against standard oil. But mm-hmm. it said, you know, if there's collusion and uh, the intent of this is to get prices up, then that is illegal. Right. Uh, well, guess what? When these producers were trying to get together with a unitization agreement or a pooling agreement, where they all agree, Mm -hmm. uh, that could potentially be illegal. And uh, some would say, well, no, they wouldn't do this to you because you're, you know, you're doing the right thing by, uh, you know, producing more rationally. And one of the major oil drillers said, well, it's sort of like if you point a gun to my head and it's unloaded, I'm still very uncomfortable. (laughs) Uh-huh. So we we have 
anecdotes like this where mm-hmm. clearly the intent of antitrust law had an unintended consequence. And you've got to find the anecdotes like sure. this. And that was probably the best evidence. And the other thing was under tax law, if you got together and created a unit, uh, you were no longer a limited liability. You were no longer a uh, limit. Well, you became a corporation. uh, So under tax law, you were subject to the corporate tax. Okay. Okay. So that was another disincentive. Mm -hmm. So let let me just summarize for the listeners here because this is great stuff, but make sure they're not getting lost. So originally... The, so there's this rule of capture, the thing where, you know, as soon as you get it, and just for an, an analogy for folks, that's like um, like when there's overfishing, right? You know, so there's some lake that the government technically owns, but you're allowed to fish there. And so the problem is, un, you know, left to its own devices, spontaneous order, given that incentive structure, commercial fishermen come out and they keep fishing and it's too much. They overfish. It's not good for the long run stock of the fish or whatever. So the government, instead of privatizing it, it puts down arbitrary rules like, oh, you can't use nets that are a certain size. Or you can't use boats that have like engines that are a certain. So they purposely make the fishing operation less efficient to try to limit the catch, you know, or you have seasons. You can only, you know, fish in these seasons or whatever. And that's kind of like you're saying the, the wave of regulations on the drillers saying, oh, you can only drill every so often, like in terms of distance. And things because they didn't they wanted to limit the overproduction because it was in a, it was the problematic, but then you're saying you know since these are big organizations, why didn't they just on their own voluntarily pool their resources and their management decisions to do something that you know was if they could all agree to it be profitable for everybody? And you're saying oh because that's what a cartel is if they're restricting output to raise prices, that's what the antitrust people don't like, and right. so it's ironic right. that yeah. And, and if you if you form a uh, a unit agreement, that mm-hmm. became subject to the corporate tax, sure. just the individual tax. So right. that was another disincentive. Then, and uh, th- this shocked me, until 1935, there was a rule, a federal rule that said oil, oil and gas drilling on federal lands could not be unitized. Just couldn't. You couldn't uh, mm-hmm. have the agreement, uh, you know, out of the Interior Department. So that was another. Uh, Do you think maybe they were doing that to partly so that when people would bid on contracts to drill, like they couldn't all collude to underbid to the government? I, I so think they some to say, of it was uh, maybe antitrust law. But you know what? That's another area where we need a little bit mm-hmm. more research. Um, and then what else? There was. Uh, oh, oh, there was also. Uh, very imperfect knowledge uh, where, uh, you know, back in the uh, back in the 30s, it was hard to know, uh, you know, how many wells to drill or, uh, you know, what the shape of the reservoir was. So a lot of people just, you know, they it was in their self-interest to go it alone. And the and the economists and the government are saying this is wasteful because, you know, oil is a depleting asset. Mm-hmm. I believe it was in 1919 where the Navy went to fuel oil from coal for all their battleships. So they're all concerned we're going to run out of oil. And they're, right. they're establishing the petroleum reserves here and there. Uh, so imperfect knowledge uh, comes into play here. But uh, And there's a couple of other reasons. But then all this overdrilling and overproduction came to a head with the East Texas oil field. 
where everyone's pumping it out and there's total distress and the price of oil went down to 10 cents a barrel. And to to give you an idea of what that was worth, 10 cents could get you a good bowl of chili in East Texas uh, where Mm -hmm. uh, they were finding all this oil. So the industry's in distress and they're, you know, the little independents, you know, they're, they're doing it. And obviously they're making a little money, but the uh, major oil companies are going, this is totally unacceptable. It's bad. So uh, they had the relative strength or, or, you know, even independents, they had the relative strength to go to the governor of Texas and the governor of Oklahoma and have them declare martial law where all the oil wells in Texas and Oklahoma were now uh, you had to cease production and the guards come in and then they come out with a, a set of rules on how much you can produce trying to get dollar oil. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the Oil and Gas Journal, they were editorializing ab- about all this. And I found some editorials that said, you know what, this is the wrong way to do it. What we've got to do is keep the government out of it, let this 10 cent oil force a bunch of people out of business so that the rational drillers can buy up and consolidate the industry. And I think it was humble oil, uh, which mm-hmm. became the the true guts of uh, you know Standard Oil of New Jersey bought humble oil and it's now, uh, it became Exxon. Well, Humble Oil like had 19%, I believe, of the East Texas field. So a free market solution would have been, even under the rule of captures, don't send in the militia, but let Humble Oil increase their market share from 19% to 80% or whatever mm-hmm. to consolidate the industry and get it on a rational basis. So all the little mom and pops, they needed to get out of the business. Uh, you know, under mm-hmm. the rule of capture. So there would have been a free market solution, even given the rule of capture to me. It would have been very messy. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, to me, it was government. And then the final thing is you have all these government rules uh, in place of self-help to tell you you can drill uh, so much, you can produce so much. So all that became uh, the so-called solution. So I remember when I talked to Charles Koch about this, I said, even if there's market failure under the rule of capture, the government correction was much worse than the waste you would have gotten under the rule of capture. And I remember him going, aha. You know, Mm -hmm. so that was a big uh, lacuna. Uh, That that was a big anomaly in this. So the, the homestead theory, you know, you can throw that out and say, here's a free market solution. But actually, the market could have worked under the rule of capture, too. Right. So it was the it's sort of like, um, you know, you see some of these anecdotes about crazy uh, executive bonuses and whatever for firms that are losing money. And yet their CEO and the top management, they're getting million dollar bonuses. And you wonder, how can that be? And one of the you know, there's lots of different explanations. But one of the ultimate things I like is to say, well, if it really were crazy, and the, you know the shareholders sort of had their company hijacked by you know management and whatever, and the cronies of the the board. A hostile takeover is the solution to that, right? But yet there's laws against hostile takeovers, and so it's the same kind of thing here. You're saying 
yeah, if the, if the underlying led rules are wrong, still the ultimate solution would be a big company would come in and buy out all the little claimants and then do something, quote, rationally, taking into account all the consequences of their activity because it's all internalized. But you can't do that if there's rules against big companies coming in and buying out all the competitors. Right, right. So th this analysis we've been talking about, it's uh, all in oil, gas, and government, maybe uh, 200 pages worth of the 2,000-page book, maybe a little more. But it's kind of lost. And I've talked to you about mm -hmm. how we need to get the book online and get these uh, particular uh, episodes uh, out there so people can understand it. Because we have a lot of economists who are very interested in common pool problems right, right. Uh, on a theoretical side, and they don't have nearly as much uh, real-world experience. So mm -hmm. uh, I think I offer something, but – you know, we need more scholars to do more research. And the only thing we don't have that I wish we had was to actually be there where you could interview these drillers to say, why aren't you doing this? Why are, uh, this is in your self-interest. Why aren't you doing it? And it could be there's some high transaction cost problems, right? you know, where you have to get 20 people to agree and you have a couple of holdouts for whatever reason. And some people were on better situated parts of the field and in mm -hmm. a sophisticated way didn't want to join. They just couldn't they couldn't agree. But still, there should be incentives for for selling or buying to consolidate. Sure, sure. Let's take a break from my discussion with Rob Bradley to talk about my book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism. So this is one where of all the books I've written, the one that's probably most directly drawing on the sorts of insights that Rob Bradley, among others, have provided, that would be this book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism. Things like, are we going to run out of oil? You know, doesn't the government need to regulate? Or, or how about this one? What causes the gas lines in the 70s? You know, is it just all those greedy OPEC countries? Is it greedy big business? No, it's the price controls. That sort of stuff. That's what you're going to find in the Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism. For more details, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash capitalism. Well, is this a good time to transition, speaking of firsthand knowledge of crazy market things, of your time at Enron? Oh, uh, sure. So how did you end up working for them? And and you, and you should explain to the listener, too, that it's it's not like you were some little cog in the machine. You actually had a pretty prestigious spot there. Well, you know, a lot of it is uh, accident, and, and uh, there's some luck here, too. So I finished this book, and it's time for me to make a salary. Mm -hmm. And uh, one last anecdote on the book, I remember my father-in-law, you know, uh, he, he was a company man, and uh, he didn't understand at all, you know, just writing this big book, and it went on and on and on, and he called me one day, he was concerned, and I said, you know, I just, I'm just a few months away from finishing it. All I have to do is service stations. And that's one thing that made the book possible was rather than try to go chronologically, where mm -hmm. you're jumping from exploration and production to refining to retailing, uh, I did it by sector. So I had 10 chapters in exploration, production, and uh, uh, transportation, transmission, refining, retailing. And doing it that way, I think, enabled me to write a coherent book. Whereas if I had tried to do it chronologically, I just don't think it would have worked at all. Right. So yeah, I anyway, I, I 
I told my father-in-law, oh, all I have is service stations. And, uh, well, I said, I only have about uh, four months to go. You know, I'm really mm. close here. And service stations ended up taking me a full year or more and hundreds and hundreds of pages. And and that's really, to me, the most fun part of the book is seeing how service stations, how they were competing and then how government intervention got involved with self-service and all this uh, and how they were marketing. It's just it's it's cute because you have too much oil coming out under the rule mm-hmm. of capture and everything. OK. And government intervention that's preventing uh, market solutions. You have too much oil. So they have to sell all this gasoline. So they're offering all sorts of things. Go into one service station. You spin a wheel and it could. And if you're lucky, you get your gas free. Another mm-hmm. station has a pony or a donkey there. And, you know, once a week, someone wins a donkey and they're, you know, and the uh, the government regulators are trying to reduce supply. And Harold Ickes of the Department of Interior was just furious because of all these service stations. And uh, uh, it's just it's 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 fun and very interesting. So. Anyway, that's a, my final tangent on oil, gas, and uh, government. But um, so it's time for me to make a living, and I interview with uh, some natural gas transmission companies that are very regulated by the FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And I interviewed at uh, Transco; they're the major natural gas provider to Washington D.C. and New York State. And I almost got a job with them in the rates department. You know, and that you're setting mm-hmm. rates under public utility regulation. I figured, okay, I can, you know, do that. But I interviewed at, uh, at Enron, and Ken Lay was a PhD economist, and Ken Lay was actually good friends uh, with my father through business. It's, it's kind of a long story there. But he uh, heard I'd written a book, and I was, uh, you know, PhD economist, and he was hiring a lot of MBAs, PhD economists, and so he greased the wheels a little bit. And uh, I interviewed in a couple different areas at Enron, cogeneration, which is very regulated part, but ended up taking an analyst job with uh, a pipeline that sold natural gas from Texas, um, New Mexico, out to California called Transwestern Pipeline. And here's another huge accident. Because selling natural gas out to California, natural gas was a swing fuel and electric generation for the whole state uh, as far as making electricity. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this gets me into electricity. And so I got quite an education on understanding all the rules of the California Public Utilities Commission, the South Coast Air Quality Management District. Uh, these government entities that, uh, you know, are very involved in the energy markets out there. So this, to me, uh, was a front row seat where I'm in staff meetings and I'm getting better information than the Harvard uh, economists specializing in energy are getting. Okay, so Mm -hmm. uh, this got me very interested in electricity. And from there, you get pretty quickly to the global warming issue. So you know, I began with oil and gas regulation. And I remember I had a meeting in Washington, D.C., and we got together all the energy-related free market analysts, and we were all in a room. We went around the room. You know, what are the big issues? 
Mm-hmm. Well, nothing was, uh, and this is, you know, the uh, late 80s, I guess, or maybe early 90s. Nothing was on oil and gas. Everything was on climate change and sustainability. This mm-hmm. was, you know, this is where the new fight was with energy. And it's a real shame because I spent a lot of time looking at public utility regulation of natural gas, both interstate transmission and state regulation, public utility regulation of gas distribution companies. And the same thing with electricity. And, you know, this is a huge field. Uh, You know, what are the distortions from public utility regulation, cost plus uh, pricing? And how do you deregulate or how do you enter into a uh, contract uh, where a regulatory commission and all the parties enter into a uh, exit contract, you know, where for 10 years you have to do this and this and this. And then after 10 years, you're on your own. So that to me was, you know, real cool. And I uh, spent time and published some articles in that. And also looking at the origins of regulation, of electricity regulation, which got me to a fellow named Samuel Insel that very few people know about, who was sort of the John D. Rockefeller of uh, electricity. Uh, He started with Thomas Edison, and then he figured out uh, the business model for electricity, which is completely different from other goods and services, because as soon as you produce electricity, you have to consume it. And that introduces a whole different business dynamic. And for decades, the the electric utility industry, they couldn't figure it out and they were mm. losing money and Insul figured it out. And that's a fascinating story. So, so in a sense, it's like a very perishable product is like one way to think about it. Uh, uh, more than perishable. <laughs> I mean, it has to be, you know, within a what, a second? You know, it's like in, like almost <laughs> infinitely perishable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, and in the old days, I mean, this is a separate discussion. But the utilities, you know, they were always trying to meet peak demand, so they'd add generation. They'd add generation to meet the peak, and then they were losing all this money. And it's because uh, electricity. There's something called the load factor, and uh, what you have to do is you gotta fill in the valleys and get that load factor up, or you don't add capacity. What you do to uh, add capacity is you require the user to pay a big old demand charge to make it work. Well, Insel Mm. uh, figured all this out. So I went from oil and gas to electricity, public utility regulation, you know, thanks to uh, Enron. And that was the first half or a little more of my Enron career. And then how did you end up, weren't you writing speeches for Lay? Yeah, and I I'd, I'd reached a plateau uh, with Transwestern Pipeline. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I got a couple of promotions out of it. and uh, But the opportunity arose w- with Ken Lay. He was Mr. Natural Gas. Uh, he was really almost Mr. Energy. And he was spending more and more of his time as sort of the father figure of the energy industry, and Enron was trying to become the MCI of uh, electricity retailing. You remember MCI? They were the first long-distance phone company where they were signing up all the retail customers. Well, Enron had a plan to sell electricity to homes, uh, have millions of homes, 
uh, and to become a major branded uh, uh, name. Uh, and, uh, so lay is because for most, yeah, normally there's not like name brand recognition in the electricity retail segment. People people know, but they're like, Oh, that's, that's the company or the utility. They don't think of it like they're buying Cheerios or Bud Light or something. Exactly. So Ken Lay's giving all these speeches and also he jumps on the global warming issue because it, uh, Enron doesn't have any coal assets. We're all natural gas and Enron gets in the, in the solar business the wind business. So there's this uh, huge sustainability push. So Lay is uh, in corporate America was really the first major U.S. executive to embrace uh, global warming and to sort of uh, declare war on the coal industry. And mm-hmm. Lay also, we weren't, uh, Enron was not into oil petroleum. We didn't have any refineries or oil pi- uh, pipelines. So we were, uh, we, Enron was uh, 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 sort of anti-oil and they were burning oil in power plants in Florida and California and knocking out our natural gas. So, you know, we became, uh, uh, Ken Lay started the civil war within the uh, fossil fuel industry, uh, natural gas versus coal and, uh, and natural gas versus oil. So with all these speeches, he needed a full-time speechwriter. Yeah, let me just, yeah, let me just make sure because your your remarks rely on certain technological information. So just for people at home, there's different ways of producing electricity. You know, you can burn coal, natural gas, or even oil, or you could do solar or wind. There's problems with solar and wind, especially back when Rob was talking here. So that just weren't practical. You know, you and so it's got to be one of the fossil fuel. And so if there's a carbon tax or some other limit based on carbon content that gives a huge advantage to natural gas because that is less carbon intensive than coal for sure. And even oil. And so that's why somebody who happens to be involved in the industry of natural gas fired power plants could be in favor of saving the planet from climate change because it's very profitable. Yeah. Ken Lay wanted to put a, actually he wanted cap and trade the most for carbon dioxide, CO2, because guess what? Enron was the major trader of natural gas, electricity, and also uh, sulfur dioxide, CO2, and NOx. So, you know, we had the trade, we wanted to create the market with cap and trade, but even short of that, Enron wanted to put a price on CO2 emissions, and we had seven profit centers where that would benefit. It was uh, natural gas production, natural gas transmission, gas-fired electric generation. We had cogeneration plants. Uh, that's that's three. We had a wind subsidiary, solar. That's five, and there's two more. Oh, one was energy efficiency. We were getting big on energy efficiency, where we'd go to a utility or a uh, you know, a, a major business, you know, like Kentucky Fried Chicken or, you know, mm-hmm. all there or a sports stadium uh, and say, uh, will, will you outsource your energy function to us for 20 years? And we have this complicated contract. And uh, so uh, we'll, you know, make our money partly on all this energy efficiency that maybe you aren't seeing. And that turned out to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you know, the higher energy prices are, the more that energy efficiency, you know, comes into play. So that's six. 
And I think there's one more that I'll... Uh, well, the actual, the trading of the of the permits, of the, you know... Yeah, the trading, yeah. that would be number seven. There you go, mm -hmm. Bob. <laughs> you know, Bob, if, if I had your brain, I would have done everything that I've done in about half the time, and it would be just a little better. Well, I appreciate that. Let me say, <laughs> if I had your stamina and determination, like... <laughs> Uh, folks, I'm telling you, like his book is very like just the amount of material, Rob, you had to go through and catalog. And I mean, it's it's like those scientists that would go out in the jungle and catalog all the insects in the Amazon or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Somebody's got to do it yeah, for the sake yeah. of human knowledge. Yeah, Bob, I don't want to do it. You have too much personality <laughs> to do what I did. Yeah, you, you need to not be uh, very exciting or excitable. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that's funny. So but with this. I mean, let me just say that and then I'll let you respond because I might have some younger listeners who don't really know, but for people, you know, 30 and over, the standard narrative about Enron was, oh, this was a, a wildcat, you know, free market corporation. They wanted, they tried to deregulate electricity in California. It didn't work. And this just shows the stupidity of libertarianism. And for things like water and electricity that are basic human rights, you can't have markets. And Enron proved that because Enron's a free market company. And here's proof you got Mr. Libertarian working for the guy. So that well, is, that's how a normal person would respond. And yet, I know you've even written books on this stuff. So what's, yeah, um, with as much detail as you want to get into, why, why is that wrong? So the narrative of Enron was mm -hmm. uh, we were one of the most politically correct companies uh, in the United States. And if if not the world, we were, uh, Enron was uh, Bill Clinton and Al Gore's favorite energy company, uh, mm -hmm. you know, because they're pushing the global warming agenda and Ken Lay is uh, uh, pushing it. And, you know, it was Ken Lay and uh, Enron lobbying that helped get George uh, Herbert Walker Bush to Rio de Janeiro in 1990. Was it 90 or 92? Uh, one of the two, it could have been 92, to participate in the conference and to sign the Rio Declaration that began this whole United Nations global warming fight. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, Enron was everyone's favorite company, but then Enron implodes, and guess what? Uh, the left, the liberals, oh, Enron is capitalist greed. We had Ken Lay he had a quotation, I believe in God and I believe in free markets. And they said, well, here's the free market company that uh, fooled everyone, that gained the rules. And, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Robert Kuttner came out and said, uh, you should no longer teach free market economics. Paul Krugman comes out and says, uh, and Enron imploded not long after 9-11. Uh, Krugman says, you know, what's the event that's going to be remembered by history? And is it going to, is it 9-11? No, it's Enron. You know, Enron refuted capitalism. And he even had some business ethics professors. Uh, one of them testified before Congress that to get an MBA, it should be a federal requirement that you take a business ethics course so that we can prevent future Enron. So there's all this. Well, well what's funny about, I've never heard that Krugman quote. I'm trying to look that up. Because he, the reason he's partly in Krugman, this is awkward, is because he was on a board advising Enron in 99. Yeah. So he's had to run away from that and explain to his progressive fans, oh, no, 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 see, that that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. You know, I was. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, he was, he, and he cashed his first check of 50000 But, you know, in, in Krugman's defense, uh, it, yeah, I think Krugman, yeah, he did write one or two favorable Enron articles, and he disclosed his relationship. It was an advisory board put together by a guy named Erwin Stelzer, sort of a big, uh, big neocon. They were trying to get the top people in different fields uh, to advise Enron on, you know, what good business strategies were, were, where we're going. But yet all these individual important people, they would say, oh, we love Enron, and they would, uh, you know, um, uh, continue the narrative. Well, my reinterpretation. Let, let me just mention, Rob, I'm excited because you're right. There's two. I'm not going to read them now here. I'm, I'm talking to you, but I didn't realize Krugman wrote on this stuff. I just thought he was trying to keep his, you know, keep his head down since he'd been on their board. So this is hilarious. I think that there's one or two articles he got out where he, he, he reported on Enron and Enron was doing exciting things and they fooled the world that the economics worked where they didn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of selling electricity to millions of people. Well, these millions of people weren't protesting their current arrangement with the public utility company. So right. the money that Enron had to spend with lobbyists, uh, with uh, opinion polls and all this was way more than they could uh, could make. It was just not a, a viable uh, business. Uh, without federal rules mandating that the utilities separate out the commodity, the electrons from the delivery, you know, for the last mile. So when I saw this huge misinterpretation of Enron, I knew it was wrong, but you know, mm-hmm. the first thing I understood was that Enron was a leading rent-seeking company in the history of corporate America in terms of how broad uh, their rent-seeking was. Um, and it was not only the global warming issue, but Enron was a leading developer of, pro- of projects in the developing countries. Mm-hmm. And uh, guess what? You know, in developing countries, they don't have the rule of law. No bank is going to, uh, you know, lend money on this. So how do you think Enron got its financing? Through the uh, Export-Import Bank and the oh. OPIC, uh, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. And Enron was a leading recipient of OPIC-XM funding, you know, many mm-hmm. billions of dollars. Enron, I think, was getting more loans than everyone else combined. So it, every, just to make sure people, you so turn, you're you're saying OPIC, O-P-I-C, not OPAC, which yeah, is the organization OPIC. petroleum. Yeah, okay. Uh, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, OPIC, and mm-hmm. so uh, Enron was a leading rent-seeking company. So uh, you know, what does this have to do with the free market? So Kindle fooled them by saying mm-hmm. we love free markets. For Ken Lay, free markets meant uh, uh, you know competition with electricity, where you had federal and state regulations requiring the utilities to divest with the actual sale, and Enron could come in. And Mm. then there's a question of how Enron fooled everybody for so long. You know, they thought it was a profitable, great company. And this is where regulation comes into play too, because can I can I just just stop for a second? So so people get what you mean here. Now you're pivoting. You're not. You don't mean fooling the average person or environmentalist into saying, "Oh, we're an ethical company." You mean fooling like investors and, and people in the 
on Wall yeah. Street as to like, yeah, like yeah. they looked profitable, but they weren't. Right. Uh, fooling the stock market, even fooling employees like me, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yeah, Enron's a great company. Well, Enron, what they were doing was mostly legal, but they were the first company to take the very complex accounting rules under generally accepted accounting principles, very regulatory driven, mm-hmm. and the multi-thousand dollar federal tax code they had full-time people figuring out how to game the rules where you what you did was legal, but you mm-hmm. misled the public. So uh, given the uh, regulatory rules of accounting and tax, Enron was able to add years to its life by fooling everyone. So this isn't free market. This is regulatory gaming. And, uh, you know, the government, what do they do after Enron implodes? They try to make the accounting regulations more strict, more strict. You know, that was Mm. another. But the the third thing is, from a classical liberal perspective, uh, Ken Lay and others, and this is like right out of an Ayn Rand novel. For those of of the listeners who like Ayn Rand, the story of Enron is the book that Ayn Rand didn't write on a corporation because uh, Ken Lay turned out to be a second-hander trying to be all things to all people. Mm-hmm. And he and others thought that it's really almost postmodernism that if uh, Bob Murphy, if I can get you and you get your listeners to believe that Enron is a great company, then it's a great company. Right. Okay, don't look at our cash flow. Oh, we have all these things we're about to do, you know, and – uh, so Ken Lay is sort of the the tragic figure and, and you know, sort of the tragic villain of the Enron story uh, that Ayn Rand would look at and go, you know, aha. Do you have, if you have a handy, do you have your Enron books to show the, for those yeah. who are watching the video? Yeah. And just to introduce this, so I was going to write, you know, my version of the Enron story. And I felt, you know, the classical liberal worldview really comes into play here. Uh, So I can completely refute and reverse the progressive interpretation of Enron Mm -hmm. and uh, provide just a whole lot of regulatory uh, history. So I was going to have one book with three sections. I was going to have worldview and then Enron's prehistory uh, because there's uh, a lot of, you know, with Ken Lay's career and others in the companies that became Enron, there's a very interesting prehistory where I can get into a lot of fill in a lot of uh, history. And then the third part would be Enron proper, you know, from mm-hmm. 80 when it was founded in 84, you know, through its uh, demise. Well, I started writing this thing and I'm back in treatise mode where I run into all this great stuff and I go, well, if I don't get this down on paper, no one else is ever going to do it. Right. And this is really important because, uh, you know, this documents the heck out of it where, you know, classical liberals can say, hey, look at this. You know, we out-researched you and what we, you know, came up with, you know, makes sense. So I remember I ran into a, a gentleman um, uh, who's the guy with the Wall Street Journal? Well, anyway, and he he mentioned to me, well, gosh, it sounds like you have some different books there. And I went, okay. So part one on worldview turned out to be a whole 
book. Can you see it? Can you just pull it back a little bit towards you? Yeah, there you go. Yep. Yeah, Great. this is a, a whole worldview of classical liberal theory applied mm-hmm. to the firm and to energy to set up okay. all the themes that Enron would become important in the Enron story. So this is kind of... And that was called Capitalism at Work for people who are just yeah, listening to the capital, audio. Capitalism yeah. uh, at Work. And we can talk about this book series, uh, but, you know, the insights of Adam Smith were uh, are absolutely crucial from the theory of moral sentiments. And there's a, a Victorian... Uh, moralist named Samuel Smiles. Oh, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Smiles to me is one of the giants of libertarian thought that mm-hmm. uh, people, many people don't know about. But anyway, Smiles in the 1850s, 60s is outlining all the bad habits that business people and individuals can, can get into that lead to ruin. Mm-hmm. And you can take his wisdom of the ages and you can apply it to you know, Enron's uh, manipulators. Uh, it's just, you know, it's great. And he's he was a classical liberal. And Ayn Rand's objectivism, really, to me, I remember I had an aha moment uh, with Enron because, you know, I knew what was going on, but I was missing mm-hmm. something about all this. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a gentleman uh, that wrote an article for an objectivist magazine uh, named Roger Donway, and he he looked at Enron and very quickly came up to the conclusion that Enron was a postmodern corporation. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. let me tell you the example that he read in the New York Times that, you know, gave him this insight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Enron's chief financial officer, uh, Andy Fastow, went to New York City maybe the year, year and a half before Enron imploded to meet with all the ratings analysts. They're trying to get a higher rating so that Mm -hmm. uh, Enron's uh, debt costs, the interest rates go down and Enron can have more money. So Mm -hmm. Andy Fastow goes through the whole Enron story and how they're making profits and this and that. And at the end of the meeting, they go around the room and the analysts go, no, I just don't see it. I just don't think we can upgrade you. So Andy Fastow, the chief financial officer thinks about it and he goes, well, how about this? Why don't you go ahead and give us the ratings increase? And then with our interest costs going down, we will make the profits that you want in order to upgrade us. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And the analysts are going, you know what? But uh, that example... Sort of a self-fulfilling rating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, there was so much subjectivity uh, uh, mm-hmm. here. But anyway, Roger Donway saw this, and it was an article in The Navigator called Enron as a Postmodern Company. And I remember I was at my desk, you know, 10 or, 10.30 one night, and I read this and I went, aha. And I had... Worked at Enron for 16 years, and, you know, I'm the expert, right? And I'm mm-hmm. a classical liberal. So Ayn Rand's objectivism, and I'm not saying you have to be an objectivist, but mm-hmm. her contributions helped me understand the world. So I look at objectivism mm-hmm. as uh, something to help. It's part of the classical liberal worldview. It helps me understand the world. So Rand's insights on Enron 
were absolutely huge. And I have a whole chapter in capitalism at work on Rand, on Samuel Smiles, and on uh, Adam Smith. So that was book one. And then book two, if you can see it. Yep. Uh, There's a little bit of glare from you. Why don't you move it a little closer to the camera? This is an energy history book that has to do with the individuals and companies that Mm -hmm. uh, preceded uh, Enron. And um, one of It was called Edison to Enron? It's called Edison to Enron Energy Markets. Yeah, I was talking over you when you said it first time. Okay. Yep, great. So- uh, and re- really, it's a it's a history of the electricity business uh, in particular. And there's a gentleman I mentioned earlier, Samuel Insel. He had a rise and fall that was probably more dramatic than Enron mm-hmm. and Ken Lay. Um, uh, he was a Insel was a billionaire on paper. He made bad decisions, leveraged himself, and he went bust uh, in the uh, early 30s. And he was so broke that they had to sell his house and everything. And he took off for Europe and his son would come, would travel over to Europe with a briefcase of money in it. So the old man wow. had something to live on. But Insel was the greatest businessman of the roaring 20s. And so there's a whole story here and there's not, uh, lots of analogies with the Enron story. Mm-hmm. And it was Samuel Insel who was also the father of public utility regulation of the electric industry. Uh, where Insel, uh, originally the electric uh, distribution companies did not want to be regulated, but they were getting hit by municipalization threats on one side, you know, to socialize them. On the Mm. other side, there was local rate ordinances that could ruin a company, say, where the politicians say, well, the maximum price you can charge is X. So Mm. Insel said, we can't live under this. What we need is statewide public utility regulation where the U.S. Constitution will protect us and allow us to get a reasonable return on our invested capital. So the origins of regulation come out of uh, Insul in this book. So um, this Enron series has helped me uh, get out a worldview and a history of uh, electricity. And finally... Well, there's also a Randian element there too, right? Where the businessman goes to the government thinking it's going to help him and then it ends up being his downfall. Yeah. uh, uh, You know, the government, uh, state public utility uh, regulators, if they do arbitrary things, then, uh, you know, it gives you some doubt. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Insul, you know, uh, it got really bad, I think, during World War I, uh, where Insul, he had a moment where he said, you know, uh, maybe no regulation would have been a lot better. But this is also the Mises interventionist thesis, where you see the origins of public utility regulation of electricity coming from potential government intervention or actual government intervention of municipalization and local rate ordinances. So mm-hmm. there's so much of the intervention that's uh, part of a process. Right. And finally, finally, and I know you're uh, – Your audience is getting exhausted, but here's the first of two books I'm writing on Enron proper, which is a uh, business uh, and energy history. Mm -hmm. But it's also this is a uh, so what this has done, what this book is, this is the first classical liberal history of a business firm Mm -hmm. where you're looking very closely at government intervention. 
and you're looking very closely at markets and market order. So uh, I am trying to interest others in, uh, I, I think we need to take every major business and write a classical liberal history of it to sure. understand mm-hmm. how the market works and then what are the effects of government intervention or is the firm pushing intervention? Are they resisting it? How's the process? Uh, but classical liberals are awfully busy uh, mm-hmm. doing other things. And so I haven't gotten much uh, attention uh, to the book, but I'm, I'm really writing for the future. And I understand people are too busy, but I figure if I can get these books out, it'll help us uh, on down the line. Well, yeah, and that's certainly the, I mean, one of the reasons I want to get you here on the on my podcast, Rob, is because I know you've got all this wealth of knowledge and people need to know these these contributions that you're making. Because, yeah, this stuff, like you say, you were firsthand there at Enron and like that one in particular is such a useful fiction for the left. Sort, sort of like they, they always have their, you know, oh, we had completely unregulated markets in the 1920s and then there was the stock market crash and Herbert Hoover did nothing. So it was important for people like Rothbard and others to go in and show, no, that's not true, you know, Lionel Robbins or whatever, to go in and, and write that, no, that's not what happened at all. Right, right. So maybe one way, uh, uh, you know, if we come to some conclusions here, um, uh, one thing I'd like to impart to your listeners is um, there's a huge opportunity within classical liberalism for what I call blue-collar scholarship. And that mm-hmm. is where you have a good world, reliable worldview, and you find an area with a business, with an industry, with an intervention, and you can go do a lot of research that hadn't been done before, and you can make an original uh, contribution. And mm-hmm. so for a lot of people out there that uh, they admire this stuff, but they go, gosh, you know, I'm not a Mises Rothbard. I'm not a uh, Bob Murphy well, there's a lot of opportunities here, and think of this also as on-the-spot knowledge. Like, right. you know, with uh, government intervention uh, in the medical industry, or imagine, you know, socializing the medical industry. We need doctors and nurses to be giving us anecdotes of the mm-hmm. unintended consequences of government intervention or the predictable consequences of government intervention. And then we need stories about how markets can overcome regulation or markets work without regulation, we've got to detail all of this. And to me, it's a huge field. And when you do this sort of thing, you're going to start seeing patterns and Mm -hmm. you can make some uh, original uh, contributions. So um, there's a whole lot out there. Uh, We need a lot more attention to detail. There's not that many uh, of us who are, you know, the theoreticians, but uh, for for history, given our reliable worldview, there's all sorts of opportunity. All right. Well, thanks, Rob, for your uh, all the work you've done and for the time you've spent here. Thank you. So, folks, my guest has been Robert Bradley at bobmurphyshow.com slash 77. I'll give links, of course, to all the materials we've discussed, and we will catch you next time. Thanks, everybody, for listening. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.